It's evening, and I'm sitting as usual up on the cold windowsill in the bedroom and looking down at the courtyard. It's the happiest hour of my day. The first wave of fear has subsided. My father has said goodnight and has gone back to the warm living room and the clothes behind the door have stopped frightening me. I look up at my evening star that's like God's benevolent eye. It follows me vigilantly and seems closer to me than during the day. Someday I'll write down all of the words that flow through me. Someday other people will read them in a book and marvel that a girl could be a poet after all. Hello and welcome to Wellversed from FSG. I'm Catherine Lacey speaking with Michael Favala Goldman, a translator of Tova Ditlevson's Dependency of Ferris Dawson Giraud's editions of her memoir, The Copenhagen Trilogy. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much, Catherine. I have a number of questions about the way you went about translating the actual text, but I wanted to start first with how was it that you came across Ditlevson's work to begin with? Yeah, um, so as a longtime reader of Danish literature before I became a translator, the only book I read of hers was Bandomansgil, The Street of Childhood, which is like, you know, it's like reading Huckleberry Finn or something in school. It's like a book that all Danish children are generally going to read in school, part of the literary canon. And then I guess it was maybe five, six years ago, I was passing through Copenhagen Airport, browsing the bookstore. This was uh, near Tova Ditlevsen's centennial. So 100 years from her birth, she was born in 1917. And so what was happening is there, she was starting to get some new champions and her books were being reprinted. And so I happened to see that this book, Gift, which became Dependency, was on the bookshelf. And I thought, oh, Tova Dillerson, I know she's a pretty big name and I, I love great Danish books. So I just took it with me, not really knowing what I was getting myself into. So when I read Gift, I distinctly remember closing the book and putting it down and thinking to myself, just my intuitions telling me, I think this is a masterpiece. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's <laughs> not something that occurs to me very often when I put down a book. Right. I mean, how could it, how, how could you get through a week if, if that was the case? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I immediately applied for a grant from the Danish Arts Foundation to see if I could do a sample of it and mm -hmm. find out if it had been translated before, which I couldn't find any evidence that it had. And I didn't know at this point that her other two books of her memoir had previously been translated 25, uh, 35 years ago, in 85, by Tina Nunnally. Her first two books were translated into English and published by feminist presses in the, in the UK and in the US. And ah. they've, been, they've been out of print for many, many years. I didn't know that yet. Uh-huh. But I, uh, I applied for a grant and I got a grant to publish a sample, which is usually like the first 20 pages of a book. So I did that. Well, you know, I, I was working on other projects. And then when it came up, I, I translated the first 20 pages because that's what I was. I got the grant to get paid to do. And I realized that I was just so enthralled. I was like captured by this book. And I thought, you know, what? I'm just going to translate the rest of it on my yeah. own for free. Yeah. Um, because I felt confident that someone is going to want this. 
I didn't think it was going to be hard to find a publisher for it because it was so obvious to me that this was an amazing right. piece of literature, a world literature, not Danish literature, but that this belonged to the world. Right. But I was wrong. Wrong was about what? <laughs> about finding a publisher for it. Oh, it was difficult? Yeah, I, I said when, when you say you came across it in 2017 and then said about the translation on your own and here we are in 2021 and it's out. Yeah, to me that doesn't right. seem that doesn't seem like a very long time actually. Like well, some some well, books I, stay in limbo for decades, you know. That's true. Uh about a year passed, I'd sent it to about a dozen publishers and I got nothing in response. You just on your own. You were on just my own. It. Yeah. It, and it is, it can be really hard for people that don't know the way that like translated literature, at least into English in America right now works. It can be a really uphill battle for translators oh, yeah. to climb, to get things out there. Um, Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. meanwhile, there's all these great works of genius that, yeah. that are, that English readers are just not even aware of because we haven't gotten access to them. And Anyway, I could yeah, go on. No, you're rant, absolutely right. But... This is such a rare occurrence mm -hmm. for a major writer from a tiny country to, you know, to hit the ground and suddenly be disseminated around the world. That right. that is not something that happens very often. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think of, you know, has it ever happened to another Danish writer? I mean, it's like, you know, Hans Christian Andersen. You know, maybe Karen Blixen. Karen Blixen is the last Danish writer who was published by Penguin Classics. That's over 50 years ago. Wow. So this is, wow. So this is a rare, this is a really rare occurrence. I have a question about the way that Didlifsen is, is a household name in Denmark, and yet we weren't aware of her really here. How is she thought of in Denmark beyond just being obviously celebrated as a genius writer and an important um, Danish writer? Is she also thought of as a tragic figure? Let me start with, um, you know, what, what kind of a book is this? Mm. You know, is it a tragic book or not? Or can it be both? Because um, one thing I think of is her style. I feel like she is, um, she's really funny. She is, um, yeah. There's a, there is humor on like every page. Now, sometimes it's just, you know, it's like, it's kind of veiled irony, but there are some hilarious scenes where they take her husband's, uh, you know, she and her mother steal her husband's suit of clothes and make a dress for yeah. her mother around it without telling him. And then, <laughs> I love you know, that. And then, and then, you know, and then he comes to a dinner party. So oh, I have a suit, you know, that looks just like that at home. And then, you know, um, <laughs> but there's lots of irony throughout the book. And she's not self-pitying or preaching, in my eyes, you know, for one line. She is unabashedly telling her story, no more, no less, only what we need to know, and the, you know, the most important facts, and not wasting anybody's time. Yeah, she has uh, an, an enormous amount of control and authority she in the does. language. So. And I feel like that's her poetic sense, hmm. it, that she knows how to end a paragraph. She knows how to end a chapter. Yeah. Her, her language is very clipped and accessible, and it is not the voice of someone who is suffering. That's you know, right. It is, it is the voice of someone who has her wits about her and knows exactly who she is and exactly what her state is, and she's going to tell you truthfully. Right. Truthfully. She's not going to leave anything out. She's going to expose herself completely. Yeah. She has a, an enormous appetite for self-sabotage which is really hard to take as a reader and as a translator for me, because I'm on her side. I want her mm. to succeed. I love her voice. I love her talent. I love her drive. I love her self-determinism. And then I see her 
sabotaging her her opportunities at every turn. Right. And so part of that message for me is that, uh, and this is part of, I think is the great ambition of the book, is by focusing on the intensely personal, suddenly for me, the book opens up and it becomes about me and about my blind spots and my self-sabotage and how mm-hmm. I do things repeatedly that are not in my best interest. Right. And then that blows up to, a, I believe, a cultural comment on our society as a society of excess mm. and, um, and images that belittle us and tear us down. And then when an individual becomes self-destructive, then it's their fault. And then we become mm. judgmental. And by reading her story, which is, yes, it is a painful story and there's a lot of suffering in it, I feel like it's a mirror for me to reflect on myself and also for our culture to reflect, for society to to reflect on itself or on ourselves so that we can see who we are, be less judgmental, more supportive, more compassionate, because despite our good looks and our good uh, talent and all of our great opportunities, we still fall into these traps again and again and again. And so right. can, can we treat each other better and be less judgmental and punitive about it? And so, so to me, it's not just a story about suffering, but it's a story of compassion and hopefully uh, you know, liberation and unity. Yeah, I mean, that's the challenge any memoirist ends up facing is how do you use this specificity of your personal experience to reach some sort of universality. And it's so easy, such a delicate process when you see it really well done, because there's never any moments of, of self pity, but there's also never any moments of trying to hide anything. Um, It takes a kind of honesty about yourself that most people just can never, you know, despite whatever's happened to them or how smart they are, how, how whatever, it's like, it's actually very, very difficult to, to achieve that level of uh, both attachment and detachment to yourself and to whatever's happened to you to be able to tell it in this way. And it's extremely rare. I, you're a poet. You've published a book of poetry that I've only seen the title, but it was Who Has Time for This? Which I feel like is such a, a perfect 21st century title of a work of poetry. Um, so I was curious because you translated Dependency, the first two books in the trilogy as it's being framed and marketed here were translated by Nina Nanelli. Did I say that right? Uh, Tina Nanelli. But, and I thought the language in Dependency, there was a little bit of a difference, but it, it seemed to me more from the first two books, but it seemed to me more about the point of view of the speaker of the book than necessarily an, an issue of translation. However, I don't speak Danish, so I, I, I couldn't go back yeah. and like look at anything like mm-hmm. the original. But of course, in translation, there's a million little trade-offs that you have to have, you know, in each little word that you choose. And I was wondering, just because of the kind of the frankness and the clarity of dependency on a sentence-to-sentence level, just what that was like for you. And I even gave you some homework to bring a couple sentences to sort of, you know, kind of lift up the hood on the the translation between these languages. Yeah. And so maybe you could share these sentences or or speak to the the difference between the Danish and the English. You must have done some translating yourself. 
No, I never have. I just am obsessed no. with translators. I think it's, okay. I love translated <laughs> literature and I think translators are like the best people in the kind of literary universe. I really do feel this way. I've been okay. translated, which is a surreal experience. Yeah, neat. Which, so. neat. So just say that you know, translating is different than reading. Someone once said translators are the deepest readers. They're the closest mm -hmm. readers. Mm -hmm. Because um, my translating process is to weigh, it's to not to translate each word. It's to weigh the emotional weight of every phrase and then reconfigure that emotional content in my mother tongue, right? Mm. So it's a relatively slow process almost of um, making as well as I can uh, the author's voice mine. Like an actor in a play, you know, has to become the character. Yeah. Uh, so although I'm not acting it out, in a way I am re-experiencing the emotion on the page and then recreating the words that relate that. Method writing in a way. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. So Tova Ditlerosen writes in a very accessible and condensed style. There's no fat on her pages. So the English has to reflect that. And I'll read one sentence for you because you did ask me that. And I love how, um, how she, like I said, how she's, she really knows how to end a paragraph or end a, or end a chapter, just like a poem, you know? Yeah. Poem needs to, it needs to either, you know, come to a full stop or it needs to like open so that it can re, you know, return to itself, or it needs to open into some fourth dimension. You know, it needs to do something, you know, at the mm -hmm. end so that you know you've arrived, right? Mm -hmm. So this was one, this is a pretty um, climactic ending where she has just been carried out of her house by the EMTs. Right. She, she weighs 65 pounds. She's been living more, more or less in bed as an addict for five years. Um, it's amazing that she's still alive. Yeah. She um, uh, has been placed in the, in the ambulance and her husband, the doctor, who's been giving her Demerol injections mm -hmm. all these years, uh, comes out and um, he says, He really hasn't had any problems in the translation, she had an ear operation that she faked because she had a fake earache. Mm -hmm. uh, and he helped arrange this ear operation for her, which she wanted so she could get all the drugs she wanted during her recovery from the operation, which is how it worked out. So as they're saying, she's about to drive off to rehab. He says, actually, I never was quite sure about that earache. And then she writes, that's the last sentence I ever hear him say. Mm -hmm. So that's like, you know, okay. You know, not only does the chapter end, but their relationship ended right, you know, right, right. right there. And her period as an addict, at least in the degree that she was, that also ended right there. You know, so there's were a lot. There, I mean, were there any, like, was that the English that you came up with there? Was yeah, that me, like the, the only way to to get from point A to point B? So I, want, yeah, I, I took this because there's a couple things happening here. So in the Danish, it says, didn't cease to set in that is the last sentence I ever hear from his mouth. 
And then in the English, I wrote, that's the last sentence I ever hear him say. Mm -hmm. And that's partially to mimic the kind of the, the cadence and, and sound and sort of impact of the way that it feels in the Danish. Exactly. Rather than from his mouth, sort of, it doesn't sound maybe the same in English as it would in German, it. I mean, in, a, in Danish, Indeed. rather. That's yeah. exactly it. So there is this balancing act that I tread as a translator, the one being to be as accurate, not leave anything out, mm -hmm. and to mimic the original writer's style as much as possible. And then also be able to recreate the emotional impact and like you say, the cadence of her speech, if it were in English. Right, right. How would she say this? Not the right. way it was said in Danish. It has to be the way it was. If you translate something word for word, it ends up sounding like right. a Google Translate, yeah. you know, like very flat, uh, kind of so, without personality. Right. So there's this balancing act of accuracy, quote unquote, versus um, faithfulness to her voice. Mm -hmm. That's the thing about translation that really uh, amazes me is it's one thing to, you know, know a language fluently and know another language fluently and be able to be a conduit. It's another mm -hmm. thing to actually be able to understand everything that's happening on an artistic level beneath the language yeah. and everything that's happening that's maybe you wouldn't think about unless you're one of these super close readers and, and a writer yourself. So there's a good illustration of the mm -hmm. translator's art and the, you know, the tone and the emotional and the craft aspect. I came up with a couple other more, what I would call cultural equivalency examples. You know, it's a Danish book. It happens in Denmark 70 to 60 years ago. So when you first read it, it might feel very exotic and, you know, long ago and far away, you know, it's during mm -hmm. the, the Danish occupation by the Nazis. And it feels like, okay, um, this is a story and it has nothing to do with me and it may not be relevant at all to who we are today. Uh, so a couple of things that I, that I had to think about was this pulimut is this, uh, this cheap alcohol that they're drinking all the time at the party right. and everything. And everybody's getting sick and throwing up and, and you can't, and, and if you want to buy a beer in the bar, you have to buy a pulimut too. Like <laughs> you can't, you know, and, and it ends up being a part of her downfall because she goes to this tubercular ball. I mean, it's like, you can't make this stuff up, you know, it's like, and, you know, that she gets drunk on pulimut and ends up sleeping with a doctor being right. unfaithful to her husband and, you know, this whole downward spot. Anyway, so pulimut. And I'm like, I, you know, I never really figured out what pulimut was. So I was like, I, I just got to leave it in the Danish and uh -huh. people will and people will figure out what it is. I mean, it's cheap alcohol. That's about all it's I like can. like a schnapps or something. It's weird it how all, like these It was all available. See, it's yeah. because during the occupation, the alcohol was being restricted and that was all you could get. Right. Everyone's sort of left to their, like, <laughs> their country's sort of bizarre, obscure liqueur that they have a lot of for no good reason. Um, okay. Okay. I had a question also about the present tense. I feel like in English and in English, you know, American literature right now, there's a kind of sense that the present tense, I feel like, is seen by contemporary American readers as a kind of 
juvenile or sort of a little bit awkward. Like it's not always that natural. It feels more natural sometimes to sl- you slip into past tense, sometimes when, even when you're writing in present tense for whatever reason. But this book is in present tense. Dependency mm-hmm. is in present tense. How does present tense operate in Danish literature? Does it have the same kind of connotations or does it seem actually, is it actually a natural way for that language to operate? That's a hard question. Um, I'm not sure I have a great answer. I do see Danish authors using present tense as a way of trying to give their writing more immediacy, and it doesn't work in English. Yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) Because that's often what like a younger writer will want. They're like, oh, it feels like it's happening right now if I put it in present Mm -hmm. tense. It's like, no, it feels like you're writing in present tense. So that is a thing. In, okay. in, Dan- in Danish writing, um, okay. that does that exists much less in English writing. There are times where I will translate an author, and I will have to change half of the pages into past tense because they think it works, but it doesn't work in English. It only works in Danish. So yes, you're right uh, to catch but, that. But this one, I mean, it, you know, dependency. It didn't feel. I didn't even realize it was reading in present tense yeah, as I was yeah. reading it. Um, because there's such a cohesion, I feel like, between the pace of the book and the pace of the narrative and the pace of her language. They're just completely in concert. It's hectic. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot going on. Yeah. I, I, and I think that is partly why it's like you're on a, you're, you're stuck, you're in a revolving door or a turnstile or something. I mean, it's like it's just pages are just rolling. Um, like a movie, you know, the movie is just rolling. And uh, so you just get carried away in it. So, right. Yeah. Well, that may actually be a good place to stop. Thanks for for joining me on this podcast where neither one of us ever has been before or will ever be again, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for sharing all that with me. You're very welcome. I was happy to be here and talk about Dependency and the Copenhagen Trilogy. Thanks for doing it with me. FSG is a division of Macmillan Publishers 